Hi, and welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and joining me as always is Nick Seagraves. Hey, Nick. Hey, Ryan. So the last two episodes, we talked about something really serious, and then we talked about something that's not very serious. Those two topics were Pulse and Parody. Today, we're going to talk about something that sometimes seems silly, but it is very serious for a lot of people, and that is the topic of gender. So this is episode 33 of The Mean, entitled Gender. And the reason that Nick and I want to talk about it today is that we've been trying to figure out how to talk about gender for a long time, whether it's transgender issues, whether it's um, feminism, social justice issues in our society. Uh, but recently I came across an article from 538.com that really starts to highlight some of the sloppiness with which we talk about and think about things like gender and sex because it talks about Olympic standards for who can qualify as a woman in the Olympics because our sports and our society are segregated by gender or segregated by sex. We'll talk about the difference between those two distinctions. Uh, and because of that, uh, sometimes there are these borderline cases of people who identify as women or female and then have certain characteristics that might give them an advantage over other female competitors because they're m more masculine in that way, whether it's testosterone levels or chromosomal issues, or maybe they were born a man and transitioned to becoming a woman. So these are the Olympics and other places like the military where there are real biological standards for certain categories of things, these become the litmus test for what we mean when we talk about gender and sex. So Nick, what I wanted to do today as first and foremost, because these discussions are so fraught with strange, incomplete, uh, reversible definitions, I wanted you and I to attempt once and for all to actually define some of these, these hot button terms. So I was going to throw out some working definitions and I wanted you to work your philosophical magic to try to actually nuance these into something that we can, we can both use and feel good about the accuracy of. Okay. I'll put my sorting hat on. Yes, please do. <clears throat> Remember you get a say. Okay. <laughs> so let's start with sex. I think between the terms sex and gender, and one of the, one of the reasons this is so fraught is that even in this article on 538, which is a, a well-respected publication, the words sex and gender were being used interchangeably. First and foremost, can you and I agree that sex and gender are not the same thing? No. They're, I mean, yes, we can agree, but no, they are not the same thing. So you and I are pretty clear sex and gender aren't the same thing. So that w when someone's making an argument, any argument or any mm -hmm. analysis, if they use sex and gender interchangeably, you and I can thumb our noses at them, right? Yeah. I mean, I think a simple thought experiment that we can do really quickly to get that off the ground is... um you know, sea slugs have sex and it might change all the time based off water temperature, but they have sexual delineation in their species. Sea slugs do not have gender. Sea slugs, there are not masculine sea slugs and feminine acting sea slugs. Um, it's the same with almost any animal that doesn't have higher order thinking skills. And I think it goes to show you that it's something where 
even parts of plants can be labeled male or female, yeah. sometimes within the same plant. Yep. And it really shows that sex is something that is almost exclusively biological. And I will actually say it is exclusively biological. Yeah. So I'll start with that foundation then. Mm-hmm. Sex, and let's let's now restrict our conversation to humans because mm-hmm. we are humans and we're narcissists. Sex is a biological reality that has to do with the pro- procreation and propagation of a species. In mammals, uh, we are, especially humans, we are sexed. Uh, the vast majority of people that are born are easily identifiable as either male or female. Males in our species, the vast majority, 99.5% of the time, have um, a penis, testicles, will produce sperm, are most of the time capable of, of producing offspring, if they have multiple female partners, they could produce multiple offspring simultaneously without having anything like twins or multiple embryos. So like a man, like let's say a cult leader that had 10 wives can have 10 kids in a year. Whereas if you're identified as female, it is almost impossible for you to have 10 kids in a year because you get pregnant, you have ovaries, you have a vagina, you, um, on a genetic level, if you're a female, you have two X chromosomes. And if you're a male, you have an X and a Y. Uh, these are biological distinctions. They have nothing to do with how you perceive yourself. Although how you perceive yourself could have something to do with these, but they're not, you know, they are the causal, they are the independent variable. Um, there's mm-hmm. nothing you can do to change your sex. Really? I mean, even though we have terms like sex reassignment and sex change. Um, Your sex is something you're born with, and each human being that is born is the product of the union of the cells of one female and one male. Can Can we agree on that? Yeah. Okay. Would you add anything to that definition of sex? Well, it goes to show you that they're called sex reassignment surgeries. You know, like, they're not gender reassignment surgeries which i guess would although be like, i have read that phrase gender reassignment yeah surgeries? i've read that phrase because people are so sloppy about this oh they mean why would it, they mean sex reassignment yeah because you're you are physically you are changing your biological makeup and maybe at some point in the future there will be ways through ex- incredibly sophisticated genotherapy that someone maybe could change their genetic makeup to become a male or to become a female. Yeah. But the point point remains though. The point remains. So the point remains that it, that would be the, you'd be changing your sex, not your gender. Yeah. So like one way to put it is roughly half the people who are born can never under any circumstances nor are they expected to become pregnant. Mm-hmm. Half, and those people are male people. Now, there are female people who cannot get pregnant, obviously. Mm-hmm. And that's a significant percentage of the population, you know, a few percent. But 
if you say I was born a male, but I want to become a female, it is still at this point impossible for you to do all the things that most females can do or to have all the parts that most females have to have all the things that go along with being female. You can, you can mimic those things in certain ways, but even getting sex reassignment surgery doesn't actually mean your sex is changing. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So now we have that sex. We're going to put that off to the side. Um, now gender, gender is going to be a lot harder to define. And it's something that I need your help with. Um, Gender is something that must be, well, see, I'm, I'm, I don't want to wander. Okay, I don't want to say must be. Um, gender is something that tends to involve perception. It tends to involve self-perception or perception by others. It tends to have some links to biological realities uh, in some cultures more than others. Uh, it does have to do with culture, it has to do with psychology and emotions. Uh, gender is something that doesn't express itself uh, normatively across all cultures, like being a man and being a woman or being masculine, being feminine. Those things don't always mean the same things in every culture. Some people experience gender fluidity. Some people experience being transgendered um, or or non-gendered. Um, Gender is something that we use in language to identify various objects and words. Um, gender is something that if we didn't have language, it would be a lot less complex. Um, gender is something that I guess that's all I have to say about gender. I would really like your help in trying to mm -hmm. really define gender, especially vis-a-vis -vis sex. Yeah. I think gender is an identity more than anything. So like like you said, which is identity is always So it would be part it would be part of an identity, right? Yeah, it's part of identity. It is it is a facet of a thinking being's identity. And for some people, like all identities, it's super important to them. And for other people it's not important at all. And for some societies, it's super important. And for some, and what, what all I'm saying this is for is to show that it is something that's communal, mm -hmm. at, like all identities. Mm -hmm. I think gender also has some type of normative and behavioral aspect to it. Because when we talk about gender, when we say something's masculine or we say something's feminine, it normally implies... Um, how it behaves, how it acts. Well, how it, so ought, we're normally, how it ought to be, right? Yeah, or even how it ought to be. Well, I mean, even for, from a purely objective, from a descriptive standpoint, and we say, oh, this, she's really girly. She's a very feminine woman. What we're saying is her behaviors line up with our ideas of femininity in the United States in the 21st century. So she doesn't wear a lot of pants, probably. Maybe she has longer than average hair. She likes traditionally gendered behaviors like baking, or maybe she's doing a traditionally female career, like being a teacher or being a nurse or something like that. We would say 
oh, she's really feminine, or maybe the way even even speech and how people talk. Mm-hmm. Having a higher be... pitched voice, being more delicate, or mm-hmm. even kind of well, and bubbly. Like, and, a, and on a pause, just a pause, this is a, speech is a great, great example of the interaction between sex and gender. Mm-hmm. So th- being really charitable to societal norms, which I know aren't people, but let's they're kind of demonized, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. let's try to be a little charitable to them. If a woman speaks in a very, very low voice, people would say, oh, she has a very masculine voice. Mm-hmm. And speech can be, the way people talk can be created by tons of different factors. Like most things, it's a combination of genes and environment Mm -hmm. and all those different things but testosterone if you start taking testosterone supplements if you take human growth hormone which produces a lot of testosterone so like bodybuilders for example their voices whether men or women begin to deepen period Mm -hmm. and this is a generalization so you know and in other ways it, it shows that there is some type of influence of sexual characteristics on these things. Yep. So, like, we relate deep voices to masculinity because men normally have more testosterone, mm-hmm. and testosterone normally influences someone's vocal cords to make them have a deeper, a deeper, lower voice. Yeah. So we're not. You and I aren't people who. And there are people out there who, like, pretend like there's no biological link between sex and gender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say it, it, this is where it really... It, a good philosophical distinction that can help this whole discussion a lot, and it's one that, as an ethicist, I'm sure you are very aware of, is the difference between descriptive mm-hmm. and prescriptive mm-hmm. statements. Is odd. So, yeah. So, th- when saying... Sex has influence on gender. I think a lot of people immediately jump to, oh, you're saying people's genders should be completely defined by their sex, Mm -hmm. period. Which is not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that would be a prescriptive thing. That would be saying you should really only Mm -hmm. act, you should only really be the way Mm -hmm. that you were born sexually. All I'm saying is, in a lot of cases, throughout history particular before industrialization, sex has a huge factor on defining what gender is for a society, period. So that's not, yeah. I'm not making any, that's not well, good, and, that's not bad. Well, and I think it's, you and I should yeah. also identify the fact that when we talk about gender as a social con- construct, we're also mm-hmm. not saying that therefore it's not real or doesn't matter. Yeah. At all. Because there's lots of things that are social constructs that determine our entire lives. Like, I don't know, money. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's walking into an <laughs> economics class and being like, money's a social construct. <laughs> so, like, it doesn't matter. You know, like, yeah. it's, it's Tra- very... Tra- traffic rules are a social construct, so they don't matter. It's like, yeah, I'd rather yeah. not have someone crash into me with their car. Like, yeah. so. that's, a social, that's a social construct, so... If you ever want to live I'll, somewhere yeah. where traffic laws are considered a social construct and therefore invalid as realities just move to los angeles yeah well there's that people don't acknowledge that particular social construct mm-hmm. they've really elevated past yeah their post like, their post traffic yeah 
Oh boy. But it, it, that's a good point to bring up too, that, but although social contracts aren't any less real, what comes with them is the fact that they're created by mm-hmm. human society. And they're socially and, created. And therefore mutable. Yes. And therefore cha- also can be changed yeah. by those same societies, which yeah. is why you have a huge discrepancy between uh, gendered thought in, let's say, 1952 atomic post-World War II America and the views on what is masculine and what is feminine to today, and why you also have discrepancies between, like, in South Korea, male pop stars wear a lot of makeup, and that's just, everyone's super normal about that. Homosexuality is also still illegal there. So it's not like, oh, we're all down with, like... Yeah, we also want to be very yeah. careful to say, when we're talking about gender and sex, we're almost not even going to talk about sexual orientation today. Like, yeah. that's, yeah. that's like, because there's almost no correlation, despite tropes, you know? Mm-hmm. There's almost no correlation between masculinity, femininity. Like, there are all sorts of lesbians and all sorts of gay guys, like, and all yeah. sorts of bisexuals. Like, that are there are bears, and there are twinks, and there are... There are a lot of different names I can't even say on this podcast. Think of an animal. Think of an animal, and there's a, something is a human being identifies. Yeah, there are so- a literally as that animal yeah. probably, yeah. and b as a gay person who looks has gray hair or something. Yeah, swans, anamorphs, swan, anamorph, <laughs> uh, digibro. Um, anyways, yeah. And I wasn't trying to bring that up, but I was just trying to say, like, you know, in our society, if a man wears a lot of makeup and is a pop star, we immediately jump to, well, I guess not in the 80s, but let's say right now. <laughs> Rest in peace, we, David Bowie. Yeah. We're not even, it, see, this is, I'm, I'm we're going to rabbit trail, so I'm just going to do it. Anyways. All right, go for it. But, but let's look at something like hair metal. Okay. This shows you how complicated gender is. So hair metal in the mid to late 80s, and it was kind of dying early. Wait, can I share a story with you? Yeah, go for it. So, when I was doing my bachelor's degree at the prestigious university, Florida Atlantic University, um, when I was doing it there, I I took a speech and debate class. um, Mm -hmm. Just like public speaking. All all, uh, education majors had to take public speaking. So, I kind of made friends with this girl who wore like only like Guns and Roses t-shirts like she was like she was like kind of overweight and like kind mm-hmm. of like a kind of like a rock girl and she was like she had I think she had a long-term boyfriend I remember giving her a ride home one time or or something and and she was really nice and we were totally different because I was like Mr. Christian guy um, and I remember her talking one of her speeches that she gave we all had to give like four speeches like a descriptive a instructional a persuasive and I forget what the last one was. Um, but one of hers was on how Axl Rose had defined masculinity for her growing up. Mm-hmm. And, like, let's just take that. Like, this is a real person mm-hmm. who, when she thinks about what it means to be a man, she thinks about Axl Rose, who, like, first let's take the whole speech voice thing. He could sing as high as most women. Mm-hmm. Like, he did not have a, a... I mean, he could sing low, but, like, just listen to Sweet Child of Mine or Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah. But also, their Guns N' Roses, their first album was called Appetite for Destruction. 
All right. <laughs> and so and it's one of the most successful albums of all time. So you have a man who has long, luxurious red hair, who is slender and pale, who wore eyeliner and tight pants, who had a higher voice than most women singers, but was like a sex god, sex symbol, defined masculinity for a generation of young women, and still was kind of like hyper-masculine in that his band was so aggressive he said, he, uh, Welcome to the Jungle has lyrics like, uh, Welcome to the Jungle, baby. You're going to die. Like, Yeah, you're like, just going to die. Like, like, feel my serpentine. Like, very, very <laughs> hyper-masculine, phallic, male language. And so, like, this is what we're talking about when we talk about gender. Like, Axl Rose was a masculine male sex god to many, many women. And I think he's one of the perfect examples of what you brought up in, in terms of like the eighties gender identification. Like, why did that happen by the way? Like what, like what is your theory? Give me a little read eighties rock male gender for me real quick. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's a slow burn. Okay. So not to be super dare to boy, but Concepts of gender, whether male or female, within themselves already have an antithesis that has been accepted by culture if you look for it. Okay. So, like, it's very easy to look at, like, 1950s. Let's go back to that America. Like, Mad Men. Yeah. Okay. Let's so, see like, Mad Men. Don Draper. Yeah. Roger early Sterling. 60s through the whole decade, blah, blah, blah. It's very easy to look at those people and be like, this is how America saw masculinity at the at this time and that's like what they really wanted but america also allowed for there to be people um who were performers like i mean if you ever watch like when kristen wig makes fun of the oh my lauren welk's show yeah yeah, yeah. lauren welk okay like soft-spoken goofy Mm -hmm. like weirdo like the performances of that time Mm -hmm. are kind of Strange. I mean, Buddy Holly was definitely, I mean, Elvis is a great example. So Elvis is super masculine, but not in the cold, austere way mm-hmm. that Don Draper is. And it's very, like, he wears glittered white mm-hmm. onesies that have, like, frill and lace on it. Yeah, let's, and I think, let's be very specific yeah. because late Elvis, late Beatles, mm-hmm. those, and, like, is it Led Zeppelin... Those had mm-hmm. already been post 1967, 1968, 1969, where there was this huge mm-hmm. rupture in American society be- between older men and younger men. And younger men, on purpose, grew their hair out yeah. to to buck standards. But even before yeah. that, which is what I think you're talking about, like if you go mm-hmm. to 1963, mm-hmm. like women are flipping out, screaming, like having conniptions over the Beatles and their hairstyle, which just is a little slightly bit longer, like the, mm-hmm. which is, which is like kind of over their ears, like the mop tops, right? Like that was, like yeah. that's what they called them. So you're even as early as the 1962, 1963, there's this kind of shift happening where masculinity is now being allowed to be different because no no one would be like oh the beatles they're sissies like they were gods yeah yeah well i mean and that's what i mean elvis's body language yeah also changed that in a lot of ways like 
his hips, like shaking his hips. Yeah, like being very hip centric, which was traditionally like the woman's yeah. job in a dancing genre. And I think as it goes through that and you have that shift in generations, you also have people like David Bowie and Elton John having very wildly successful careers in the 70s mm-hmm. who did, I mean, David Bowie it made a market out of being androgynous. Mm-hmm. And then you, as that goes on and on, the 70s, everyone is just like a disgusting, sweaty, hairy mixture. Just gross. Just it's almost like gender dissolves and it's just sex, not in terms of identity, but sex in terms of just people are just having sex. Let me also bring something yeah. up to you that I think is maybe the ultimate. This is, this is a better example mm. than actors or performers or singers because a certain subset of men will always find those people feminine. will always find performers mm-hmm. in that way feminine. But in the 60s, you had a series of huge sporting events. The biggest sport in America and in the world, arguably, at the time, television-wise, was still boxing. And you, mm-hmm. had, you had people like Joe Lewis and people like George Foreman, who are these massive, masculine, hairy, like, dudes who would just pound the crap out of people. And then you had their arch-nemesis, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad mm-hmm. Ali just passed away, rest in peace, is the greatest boxer who's ever lived. He was nearly hairless, always clean-shaved. He would talk about how pretty he was. He would talk about how ugly his opponents were. He would float around. He literally said, I float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Like, say that in the gay Mayor B voice from, (laughs) (laughs) you know know what I'm saying? From Family Guy. And it's like, those are feminine things. He was very pretty, very clean, very witty. His banter was like on point. But he was acknowledged as the champion of the world, the most dangerous man on the planet, once again, a sex god, a sex symbol, and the height of masculinity, but in a way that his opponents were nothing like. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great example in the 60s of a thing where you're like, okay, well, what's masculinity? Is it Joe Lewis who Muhammad Ali called a big hairy ape? Mm -hmm. No, or is it Muhammad Ali, like literally a pretty boy? Yeah, well, it also shows you that there are, in cultures, always, always, always disagreements about how we define things that are constructed by a community. So even if, you know, like, for example, yes, hair metal was going on in the 80s, but so was Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. You know, so there's definitely, and yes, the Smiths were happening, but so were very, 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 you know, Tame-ish bands and icons and figures. I mean, Ronald Reagan was still elected president, although I guess he was an actor, so that's kind of different than. Um, well, also, like, I, I think about the first Super Bowl, which was happening, I believe, in the '60s. Yeah, first Super Bowl mm-hmm. between because the AFL and the NFL merged to make one league, and that was the first Super mm-hmm. Bowl. It used to be the NFL championship, and the Green Bay Packers would win, or the or the Cleveland Browns win. But football, probably one of the more masculine sports, right? Mm-hmm. Um, has the first Super Bowl, and it's between the New York Jets from the AFL. And um, the Baltimore Colts from the NFL. And the quarterbacks were a very old school crew cut Johnny Unitas for the Baltimore Colts. 
And for the New York Jets, you had Joe Namath, a.k.a. Broadway Joe, who had long hair, looked like the Beatles, and wore fur fur coats like to, <laughs> like on the sidelines of his football games. Literally wore like big, huge women's fur coats, basically. So, mm-hmm. like, think about that. Like, you and I could probably come up with examples from the 40s and 20s and, and, and other times as well, but certainly for the last 50 or 60 years, there's been no agreement within our culture about what it means to be a man, even among football players, even among boxers. There's, yeah. there's well, no I mean, agreement. We don't even have to get into like Dennis Rodman yeah. and like yeah. stuff like, like there are always inside of cultural constructs, there will always be room for someone to be like, and this is how they do it. This is really how it works is they go, well, look, I meet Mike, let's say subculture that I'm talking to. So let's go back to hair metal. I know this is a huge tangent, but I think this is really good. Let's go back to hair metal. Like for you, what it means to be a man, young, 18 year old guy in New Jersey, 1986, is to have sex with lots of women, to do whatever you want. Drive a Camaro. and Drive a Camaro and have a good time. Okay. Now I do all of those things to such a heightened level that no matter what I do, I am masculine. Yeah. Period. Yeah. So if I have a cheetah print neckerchief on <laughs> with fluorescent tights and I've spent hours on my hair, obviously, and I'm screaming in a higher pitch than anyone singing right now as a woman, then it doesn't matter. Like yeah. none of that matters because the what becomes important in gender, and it's the same thing where it's like if you are a professional football player, there's very few things that can revoke your status as being masculine. Yeah, even wearing yeah. a fur coat on the sideline and having long hair. <laughs> yeah, and because your force of masculinity is so strong, I would argue that you begin to reflect that back on the culture and go, oh, well, like, I guess you don't have to look this way to do it, you know? And it like, it kind of loosens, it starts loosening things. Yeah. I'll give you another example. Like I've known very beautiful women who are just very attractive and very feminine, but they also like do hardcore martial arts or boxing. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so, and I, I'd never met a guy that's like, Oh, she's not feminine because she does a martial art. If she has something else that kind of trumps that, that makes her, mm-hmm. that makes her feminine. Like, oh yeah, she runs a bakery, but she does Krav Maga on the side or, or whatever, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. like no one, no one cares. Like, it's almost like you have to check a certain amount of boxes. And if you do, then like Muhammad Ali, he checked enough of the masculine boxes that the stuff about him that was feminine actually almost amplified his masculinity rather, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And like the rock gods, they're long teased hair and leotards like amplified their masculinity because they checked the boxes of society and said, well, this is what this, these are some of the things you have to have to be masculine. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that seems really tangential, but it's to say we can see already that it is something that's in constant flux and it's a give and take an individual can be, you know, culturally powerful and Kanye West is a great example yeah. too mm-hmm. in terms of like I'm turning like before his rise to super popularity you have this like late game hyper produced gangster rap mm-hmm. as opposed to like 
the people who actually lived on like in ghettos yeah, yeah. to like the people who are made to look like it. Yeah. So everyone's like these super masculine. I'm 50 cent. I got shot. Here's mm-hmm. my bullet wounds. Mm-hmm. I wear like, a bandaid well, on my face. Yeah. And like we're all like really, 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 really tough, and we don't do this stuff. And then Kanye's like, "Oh, I really love like boat shorts and skinny jeans and skinny jeans and Sperry's mm-hmm. are awesome and auto tune and Bonnie yeah. Bear and Bonnie Bear." And it's like, and I don't think anyone's like, "Oh, Kanye West isn't really isn't really doing a good representation of black masculinity." I think people most people would be like, oh, well, this is a representation of how that's changing. Yeah. And, like, yeah. So I think now that we've established that gender has changed and it will probably always continuously Mm -hmm. change, we can talk about, uh, I think it would be helpful to make explicit some of the ways that sex has influenced gender and maybe why that create some confusion yeah still well I'll, I'll give you a personal example um so my wife and i are are fairly traditional people but we for the last few years as you know have been in a situation where because i'm doing my phd she is in a position where she can make more money than me mm-hmm. so she works and i'm at home and i have part-time jobs and go do things and I'm not like just like a fifties housewife. But if you said which one of these people is more like a fifties housewife, it would be me. So I joke mm-hmm. that, you know, that I'm a house husband and now I'm a, a house father, I guess a stay at home dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what's going to happen when Jessica goes back to work in the fall. So our son Max is only not quite four weeks old, but when he's about three months old, his mom has to go back to work and dad's going to be at home. And so, which is interesting because I think there are some things that are fairly masculine about me. I like sports. I'm a hairy guy. I smell bad. Mm -hmm. I I can grow a pretty nice beard. Um, I, but there are also things that are feminine about me. And one of them right now is that I, I'm like a stay at home mom. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's interesting for us because we, like we didn't set out to have those roles. Like it, it, those are, that was basically like the situation dictated that, that this is the best thing for us to do. But even so I've found that in my wife's pregnancy and in her having a, a, a baby that we did kind of revert to some more of the traditional, like masculine feminine stereotypes because of biological realities, things that she needed me to do for her, things that only she could do for the baby. Um, and so the presence of a, uh, the, 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 the manifestation of sexual reproduction actually mm-hmm. pushed our genders toward more sex based norms, at least for the time being. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So I would say that's one of the things that, that influences gender is when you do have sexual reproduction, um, sometimes, much much of the time, uh, you and I both know very progressive couples who they've gotten pregnant, had a baby, and then for at least a period of time, there does seem to be kind of a reversion to what some people would say is a more typical or, or traditional gendered stereotype living like the mom's more at home being more nurturing the dad goes out and kills the meat and drags it into the cave you know like that 
you and I have both seen that happen with people who aren't kind of beholden to those ideologies. Like they, they don't, they're not saying this is the way it ought to be. They just say, well, this is the way it is for us right now. I think that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where if your wife got her hands chopped off, (laughs) I like where this is going. I I need this. Like let's say she was in an awful she was trying to, you know, change her cello strings and the tension was so strong it just sliced her hands off, okay? Which happens all the time. It's really scary. Yeah. And from that point forward, a lot of things in your life would definitely change. Yeah. And if Jessica, I mean, I don't, you know, if she had to stay home, which she probably would more often, if she had to be more domestic because of that physical reality, that's not saying anything about all women should be, it goes back to the descriptive and prescriptive um, distinction we were talking about. Like when you are pregnant, you are part of your body's nutrition and energy and attention and everything is going into fabricating a human being from a single cell into a billion cell organism with complex systems. Yeah. So you might be, you might be a little tired. Yeah. You might be a little emotional yeah. because when I get, when my teeth hurt, I get emotional. Yeah. So I couldn't even imagine having a human being inside of my mm-hmm. body, what that would make. Well, and also like. just the, the literal spikes in all mm-hmm. the chemicals in your body. Like this is, this sounds kind of, kind of gross, but pregnant women have 50% more blood in their body. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just a thing. <laughs> like, and that's only one of the hundred things that's different about a pregnant woman from a, from a woman who's not pregnant. It's just, there mm-hmm. are realities that, you know, we know that if you have more testosterone in your body, you can lift more weight. And we know that if you have more, you know, progesterone in your body, you express emotion more intensely. Yeah. And all those things are just saying, cool. That's really cool. And I think the distinction between a biological reality, a physical reality, and a mental identity psychic state like gender is that there is human agency. Yes, it is determined in some ways by community, but it's also determined in the sense of an individual can very much be like, I'm just not really interested in gender. And that's kind of where I've been as as a human being is I haven't I don't wear traditional female clothes Mm. and all of my, I have a beard. I do things that are mostly would be considered male by a lot of people, but I don't really, it's not really important to me if someone thinks I'm being masculine or not. And I think for some women and for some men, either they, they want to be treated very masculine or very feminine they want to have the perception of them be that very high. And I think that's fine. But I think that it goes to show you that for some people getting pregnant, going through that experience and maybe having to return to more traditional gender roles would be for them to be like, well, see, maybe this is how it really should be. I think for other people it was like, wow, I'm glad we were flexible enough in our relationship to do whatever we needed to do to ensure our son had a great childhood. And if that includes me staying at home and cooking pies as a husband, then that's what it includes. Yeah. You know, like it's, it, it, it's just interesting to me 
how oftentimes people take a situation and they always want to turn it into a maxim. They want to turn it into some type of blanket statement of, and this is, we have finally found the one keystone definition of gender right here. We've worked it all out. And I, I, I think it's weird. Now, where I think it gets really interesting, and this is this will probably shift towards like the discussion of transgender stuff, mm. is when you try to enforce something socially, like the sports mm. conversation, right? Like yeah. that's social enforcement. Like we're not going to let you compete because you have testosterone levels that are more like a man than like a woman, so we're not going to let you compete in the Olympics against other women. Um, you know, that's embarrassing, humiliating for the woman. She's had breasts her whole life. She's had a vagina her whole life, but she has these elevated testosterone levels that are much more like a man's uh, average levels than like a, a woman's. What do we do about that kind of a situation where like, if you want women to be able to compete at sports in sports at the highest level, like you have to have gendered sports because the vast majority of sports men would just be like, Venus and Serena Williams are two of the best female tennis players of all time. Like some people say Serena Williams is the best female tennis player ever. And mm -hmm. every once in a, like every once in a while they'll play mixed doubles against a male team comprised of guys you've never heard of. And they'll get crushed because it's just mm -hmm. not fair. It's just not like they're amazing athletic specimens, but men in general have what they're taller they're faster, they're stronger, they have higher red blood cell count, they have a larger lung capacity, they have denser bones, they can work out more um, more aggressively because of testosterone levels. So it's like, what do we do in things like sport? Like, on the one hand, we could say, well, yes, we're going to enforce these, like, if you have an elevated testosterone, you can't compete with other women on the other hand you could just say well just like have everybody compete in one pool but then all women lose out or most women lose out because they're not built the same way as men are built so like what do we do with those kind of socially enforced spaces yeah um i think another good general concept to bring in is um it's mostly i mostly use it when i talk about linguistic pressure mm-hmm uh, but I, this is a question of language because we're talking about definitions. Yes. Yeah. So in that thing, a, a good, really funny example, or not funny, but cute example would be if you're texting someone that you have a crush on. Yeah. Every single word that you send them, suddenly you realize it, it can have an infinite number of meanings that yeah. can be interpreted by another person. Yes. So if they say, are you doing anything tonight? And you say... Um, I don't know. Immediately you can start being like, oh, it, are they going to think mm -hmm. that I'm accusing them of something, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. so There's a really funny that, Key and Peel skit about about this where they're texting each other and one of them is interpreting it, interpreting it completely in a friendly way and the other one is interpreting mm -hmm. it as like, um, we're about to slit each other's throats. Yeah. And those those things become even, that happens all the time. Like I've misinterpreted messages from people I'm not romantically involved in, but in even extreme situations where you're trying to make a really good first impression yep. and you're trying to win someone over an interview like, or a cover letter or an interview, like when you're writing your resume, things become so scary. Yeah. And I think in a situation like this, which has a ton of 
I would define it as sexual pressure yeah. and not in terms of repression or sexuality, but in sex, biological sex. So because the, this activity, the height of human athletics, the Olympics, mm-hmm. you know, is about human physical capacity and yeah. capability, yeah. things that have to do with sex become incredibly complicated because it's such an extreme amount of pressure. And in everyday life, I mean, Hobbes does a great example when they, in the Leviathan, people, he's rebutting people who are trying to distinct, make distinctions between men and women based off their physical strength. And he says something like, yeah, if you were both fighting a gorilla, it doesn't matter. Like you're gonna, you're gonna get murdered. Like in the big screen, in the big picture of things, like, oh, you're a man, you can lift 200 more pounds than a woman. Okay, a lion can rip your head off regardless. So it's like, but in the specific situation of the Olympics, a man on, on average being able to lift more, period, just because of his sex becomes a very important thing to regulate yeah. if you want women to compete at all. Yeah. If you want women to compete at all. And that's the big, the big, big question there. Yeah, and it, and it, and it, and the Olympics are serious because it's a huge industry, but there are mm-hmm. even more serious things like our military, you know, we've approved women being in, co- in combat roles, but there's a big debate about, well, sh- since women are going to be in combat now, should we change the fact that women have lower bars for entry, physically speaking, to the, to the military? Like for any age or any position, it's like women don't have to run as fast a mile time. They don't have to carry as heavy a pack in, in many cases. And so it's like we do literally have different standards. So if we were to just throw everybody into the same pool ath- with athletics and military and, and other things that are extremely physical, extremely biological, then – women would be kind of, uh, most women would be disqualified just based on the, just based on the pool, you know, just based on the, mm-hmm. the sheer number of men who are a little faster or a little stronger or, you know, what have you. Yeah. And I think it begins to put, it forces people to start defining themselves by things that they don't even think about. And I think that's where the outrage comes from in this, you know, Mm -hmm. like if I'm a man, I don't, I have never thought in my life, I wonder what my testosterone level is. Yeah. Now, if I got prostate cancer or if I got, you know, if I developed low T syndrome or things like that, then I would start looking into it. But right now as a 25 year old, boy, I don't really go wake up and go, oh, I hope my testosterone levels are, are within the defined societal parameters for being a man. Yeah. And, I, and there is something dehumanizing and almost animalistic. It is animalistic because it's the most animal. Our yeah. bodies and our biology are the most animal part of us. Mm-hmm. So when you get into well, these discussions. someone doing that. Yeah. Go for it. Go. Yeah, I just think like when we get into these situations, these are the these are the things that show that we are animals. Mm-hmm. We're not simply animals. We're not exactly like other animals, but these are the situations that remind us that, you know, when I was in the hospital room watching my kid be born, I was like, all right, this is biological. This is medical. This is, this is serious. This is life and death. This is animal. You know, the way that we, 
the way that we propagate our species still is very biological and very animal, even if we kind of try to couch it in a lot of culture. Um, and that's not me advocating for anything in particular. It's just, I think, mm -hmm. I think we live in such an advanced economy and such an advanced society and such a culture that's been built upon decades and centuries and millennia of development in a certain direction that, yeah, like, I don't think the difference between a male computer programmer and a female computer programmer has as much, you know, but like, that's because we've built a society with computers in it. And so we walk around most of the time, um, having built layers of protection, layers of law, layers of order, layers of engineering and, and culture built up, um, in the form of cities and streets and transportation and technology. And, um, and that's awesome. And it's a level playing field, but I think this is why we have to have some of these, these conversations that other cultures don't have to have because they're still doing things that are a lot more physical, a lot more related to who we are as animals, like subsistence farming, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it, it shows that these questions became very important during times of industrialization. Yes. That's a big, it's, that's a huge point. It's a huge point it, because you, if, you all have to make the food that you eat. If every once in a while you're the person who gets pregnant for nine months, you know, yeah. and also uh, generally not as physically strong as your male counterparts, then the cultures are going to start developing where it's like, oh, well, there's a lot of tasks that need to be done that don't require those things yep. that, you know, it's a division of labor. It's survival in, in the full sense. And I think as we move away from that and it's like, we're in an office at state farm. I don't care if Ted can lift 50 more pounds than Stacy. Yeah. I need someone to write a memo. <laughs> like yeah. It's not yeah. really, it has nothing to do with that. And I think it gets so complex because it's so hard to say in such, such a, an advanced society, such a technologically and economically advanced society, it's really hard to kind of parse out what are the advantages and disadvantages of being a man when you're a CEO. Cause I'm sure there are mm -hmm. like, we know tall people get paid more. Mm -hmm. You know, there are advantages to being physically imposing. They're just a lot more nuanced and hard to track than, Oh, we have to chop these trees down to build our house right now. Like that's obvious. Yeah. And it's not as obvious why, you know, a very strikingly handsome man can run a company maybe worse or maybe better than a smaller woman who's just as smart and just as capable to do the actual tasks. Yeah. And this, that brings up a good point when you said maybe. And I think a lot of times when talking about gender and gender roles and generalities, when we talk about different genders... A really important thing for my argument is speaking in norms is totally fine with me. I know a lot of people have a problem with that. Like some of the things when, if you were to say women still on average choose to go into traditionally female occupations, yeah. which is true. Teaching, nursing, teaching, okay. nursing, blah, 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 blah. Saying that out loud can get you in a lot of trouble. Yeah. You know, like that's, 
that's the thing. And I think the because you, when you say it out loud, it's yeah. such a powerful fact that it seems normative. Yeah, it seems like you're creating a standard. Yeah. And so for me, I think you're allowed to talk about generalizations as much as you want. If you also keep in mind that there is always the possibility, because these are not hard and fast categories, for someone to do the exact opposite. And if you've ever created a system where that is impossible, then that's where I think well, it will do discrimination. It will do violence yeah. to somebody. Yeah. But that's what makes this Olympic thing so shitty, honestly. Yeah. Because... No matter which way you cut it, the victims will be women. Yeah. So either you let people compete on what they identify as, and that's the only standard. So then you have people who are not even post-op um, transgender uh, women competing in female categories mm -hmm. who have the testosterone and bone structure and all, all that stuff you just said. Um, so then that kind of pushes out, you know, other women mm -hmm. or you go with this kind of draconic, like, let's test your chemical imbalances and whatnot in your head. And then you have these outlier women who are perfectly biologically female, but happen to have very, you know, high numbers of testosterone or whatever, who have to like kind of quote unquote take one for the team yeah. and be excluded. Yeah. So it's just, it sounds like a really awful situation to be honest with you. Yeah. And there, there are two, I think more important societal conversations that I'd like to kind of wrap up on uh, mm -hmm. and get your opinion on. So this Olympics thing is only ever going to affect a very small elite part of the population yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. directly speaking. Um, and one solution is to continue to try to find ways to police Sex, not gender, but sex, because we don't care how they dress when they're not competing or whether they have high voices, to police sex um, segregation in, in the sports or to abolish sex segregation and then sports will be dominated by men by and large. Uh, so that's, that's sad, but it's not going to affect most of us. What will affect a lot of us is discussions like – I wanted to bring up two discussions. So – uh, the first one is about men's and women's sports in, in business terms and in like, should we support these things as businesses or as spectacles? Uh, and the other one is the relationship between arguments about transgendered things and feminist things. So the first one's okay. going to be a pretty short conversation. Okay, so I listened to a podcast where Abby Wambach, who was one of the captains of the U.S. women's soccer team, she just retired, big, strong happens to be a lesbian, um, very masculine woman, um, fast, one of the great female soccer players of all time. And she was talking about how it's so unfair how much less the women, the women's team, the United States women's team soccer players get paid than men's team um, because they should get paid more equally. So women, the men's soccer team, like they get like, I don't know, 60 times more money or something crazy. Um, mm -hmm. And she and the podcast guy who I like, Bill Simmons, were like, oh, man, that's so wrong. Why is it that way? It shouldn't be that way. It should be more equal. And my analysis of this is, Abby, you're not playing against the best soccer players in the world. 
So when, when we pay people to do something and we pay them a ton of money, it's usually because they're economically part of a very small group of people who can do that, right? Like people who are truly genius artists or people who are truly genius musical performers or people who are truly at the top of their game. Abby Wambach is playing against the best female soccer players in the world. She's not playing against the best male soccer players in the world. Um, in fact, most of the women on the U.S. women's soccer team couldn't get on even semi-pro male clubs. So, so my problem with some of these sort of gender equality conversations is that when we ignore that we have made choices to segregate certain physical areas of the economy, um, we're almost having a pretend conversation. Like, I wish I could have been in that room to go like, Abby, like, have you ever had to compete against the best soccer players in the world? And if, and if not, why do you expect to be paid as if you do compete against the greatest soccer players in the world? It just just doesn't make sense. It would be like me being like, Nick, I'm in a softball league and it's only chubby white guys. And why am I not getting paid at the same level as the best baseball players in the world? You'd be like, well, Ryan, you're not really competing against the best baseball players in the world. So why should they, why should someone who's much better at the sport have to give up their paycheck so that you can get a better paycheck. So that's my first kind of example. Do you have any counters to that or anything? No, I mean, I would just say, I don't even, I don't want to sound like a libertarian, but I I don't think society, this sounds kind of nihilistic actually, but I don't think society really pays people based off ideology that much anyways. Yeah. The paycheck difference, my initial gut reaction to tell her would be, I'm sorry, people just don't like watching women's soccer. Sorry. Like, people in America barely watch, like watching men's soccer. Yeah. So it's like... Well, and U.S. soccer players yeah. make a lot less than Brazilian, Spanish, English Premier League players. No, because, those... because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the same thing of if you had an all-female sitcom that was really popular and an all-male sitcom that wasn't really popular... And you were a big name. If Amy Schumer came and did a sitcom on ABC, she would probably get paid more than so-and-so, whoever, male comedian in this new up-and-coming thing that's going to flop in 12 episodes. It's because it's not in the demand which determines Well, that's the real... Yeah, exactly. That's the real conversation is the, the Men's World Cup, even though they're like, well, the Women's World Cup final game broke records and, like, was even more than the men's... World Cup final game in the United States. A, that's because the men's U.S. team is never in the fi- the the final game of the World Cup. So Americans mm-hmm. aren't gonna. Americans only watch men's soccer when the U.S. does well, basically. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. women's soccer team is the best team in the world. But the value of that to sponsors is very limited because what makes sponsors money is predictable, continual uh, demographic watching of a sport over time especially tournaments large tournaments right so the reason female soccer players are paid less than male soccer players is because drastically less people watch female soccer worldwide than male soccer it's not close it's not comparable it's probably over a hundred to one male soccer versus male male soccer is the biggest sport in the world period yeah female soccer is kind of like a novelty to most people um and And it's not saying that it's not as valuable for a woman to become a good athlete in that aspect. But the reality of the culture is right now that 
a lot of people just don't enjoy watching female soccer. I mean, I hate sports, period, so I don't care. I mean, it's like... Well, and for me, for, for me, it's like, if you can get the sponsorships, if you can get the companies, if you can get the people to watch it, then you're going to make more money. That's just how it is. Like, you and I don't make any money off this, this uh, podcast because, like, 50 to 100 mm-hmm. people listen to each episode. But if we had 800,000 people listening to each episode, like Bill Simmons' podcast, guess what? You and I would make as much money as Bill Simmons makes. Yeah. And it's not wrong that he makes more money. Okay, second example. What are some of the – and we can't really totally dive into this right now. But what are some of the difficulties that come up when we have conversations about transgender stuff and feminist stuff? What are some of the kind of definitional or kind of um, presuppositional – difficulties that we run into when we try to have those conversations yeah um a really really big one is that third wave feminism which is my favorite kind and i'm not saying that facetiously but uh i true orthodox third wave feminism is really really great because it started trying to say like you know gender's not really like this hard and fast thing it's kind of fluid it it's based off behavior and that always changes and blah, 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 blah. And you kind of have this strong push from a lot of especially academic feminists who are saying those things. But then once uh, transgendered issues started coming up, there's this conflict between saying gender can kind of be whatever you want it to be and another group of people saying I'm born into the wrong body for my gender, which seems to be a very definite, real, strong, uh, strongly defined thing in that situation. Yeah. So that's a huge, huge, huge problem. So let let, let me ask you in question form, whether I'm getting this right. If gender is very much locked into your physical body, mm-hmm. i.e. biology, and in many cases, sex. If there's a really, really strong necessary correlation between sex and gender, between embodiment and gender, then that's bad for third wave feminists and it supports the cause of transgender people who want to get kind of reassignment surgeries and, and things of that nature, right? Right. Right, but then there's also... But, but on the other hand, but on the other hand, if there's kind of a weak link between gender and sex, if there's a weak link between biological realities and more culturally constructed realities, then that would support the claims of third wave feminism, but it would detract from the necessity of a transgender person having to physically manifest their, their gender identity or it would just mean that most transgender people aren't aren't simply transgendered; they're transsexed. Yeah. Like, why do you have to cut your penis off if all all that's different about you is your gender? Can't you still have a penis and totally like? Why do you need to get breast implants if it's just a question of gender? Or is it just that we don't know what we're talking about? And most transgender people are actually saying, "No, I'm transsexed." Like, I'm in the wrong. When you say I'm in the wrong body, aren't you saying I'm the wrong sex? I would say yes. So I I think being the most charitable to a common transgender argument would be I, my, my uh, psychological state is one in which I 
feel like I should have the trappings of a traditional female body. Okay. So I oftentimes wish I had breasts and I wish that I had smaller features and I wish that I um, didn't did not have a, a external sex organs. Like, so you know, it would be something like a like a sex body dysphoria. Kind of mm-hmm. Well, that's why it's called body dysmorphia. It's not yeah. gender dysmorphia. Okay. It's it's um to go in that way, and it it's also bears it, it, to clarify here too. There's also a large part of the transgender community that doesn't ever consider sexual reassignment surgery. Yeah, and that's one of my points is that this isn't yeah. this isn't one thing. Mm-hmm. There are people who yeah. are like, "Hey, I have a male body, but I." like to express myself in ways that have been seen as classically feminine. Okay, well, Mm -hmm. cool, great. You don't need to take drugs. You don't need to chop things off of yourself. Then, Mm -hmm. then, like, wear wear the hats you want to wear or don't. You know, like, that doesn't seem like a, like, as big a deal. That seems like we can negotiate it a a bit, a bit more cleanly than I'm literally in the wrong body, which seems like a sex thing rather than a gender thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and it goes to show you that it isn't a monolithic issue. Like there are some people who have transitioned, and all that meant to them was changing how they viewed themselves mm-hmm. internally. And they and maybe the way they dress and stuff reflects that now. And perhaps they've decided to take you know testosterone supplements. But that, but that starts producers. that starts to get into the sex thing because although they're not as. Um, implanted or as solid as sex organs those those secondary mm-hmm. sexual characteristics are n- normally or usually or most often um tied to biology right yeah so if you start to take um testosterone as a woman or start to take estrogen as a man you're kind of trend you're kind of stepping over the line from a transgender issue into a transsex issue right yeah well that's all i'm saying is that there's 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 people who do nothing, who do it more on a personality, a psychic kind of basis. And then there's people who just use chemicals. And then you have people who do the full surgery. And I think that they, it's, it's a, it's a wide community. And I think that not all of them, I mean, I've talked to a man who transitioned to being a woman, um, who is taking hormones and, is currently waiting to be approved for a sexual reassignment surgery. And he's actually uh, one of my friend's really good friends. And I've hung out with him a couple of times while her. And she just says, I know gender isn't something that's real. It's just that, or not real. It's not something that is physically, physically limiting in these ways. I just think that I and I feel this way, and much happier living as a traditional Western female. That's the, And that's really, that's been the most nuanced thing I've heard. So it's been, I'm not saying that I was born with the mind of a woman and I'm stuck in a man's body, which is like a common trope yeah. from both sides of reducing the transgender issue to that. Um, she would say, I just have always known that I would be much happier doing all those things. And part of doing those things is, yeah, you can be a someone in a, like if our friend Tim Davis woke up tomorrow and was like, I want to be, I want to involve myself in the 
tradition of Western femininity. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, Tim is a gigantic, huge Aryan man. And he went out and bought the biggest sundress imaginable and walked down the street. He actually probably wouldn't be treated like a traditional Western woman. Yeah. And so he, the transition on that area is really more that they're recognizing that identity is, yes, a personal decision, but also a communal decision. Mm -hmm. So if you want to be, if you want to live the life as a traditional Western man, for example, then having a deeper voice, having broader shoulders, being able to grow facial hair, um, having larger pores, which I know is what everyone wants when they transition. Yeah. Um, is is part of becoming being able to live that identity in public and not always having to couch it with I know I obviously have breasts and I'm wearing a suit but I want to be a man you know like you mm. in, instead it's I don't have breasts anymore I don't have to I it's almost like and how does all this relate like, to the third the third wave feminism argument I think the third wave feminism argument can jive with this if you take um, kind of the multiplicity of genders kind of theory into it and saying that because gendered is such a fractured concept and a man can mean all of these things and a woman can mean all of these things, then, and because it's very post-structuralist too, it has very strong roots in Foucault. I mean, Judith Butler, you know, did everything about him initially yeah. under him and doing those things. Um, it, it, they would very much say part of having an identity is being able to choose how much you care and how much you want to go with it. Yeah. So if you really, 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 really like the ideal of a fifties housewife who, you know, stays home with the kids and makes sure they have a really good life and is like, keeps everything really clean and is super beautiful and like you just really enjoy that and you find a partner who also thinks that that's great and doesn't need anything else from you then like good for you great like that's really awesome like you have every possible right to do that as a human being yeah my big question that we'll have to unpack in another episode mm -hmm. is to what extent uh, other people be forced to to conform to your subjective experience of reality you know what to what yeah. extent ought you be able to force other people to go yes you are a woman like to what extent does you know south park has made made fun of this with like caitlin jenner is a beautiful courageous woman if you don't say it we're going to beat the crap out of you um mm -hmm. you know to what extent is our society a society in which like both people have to accept that you identify as that and they have to kind of agree and because we're becoming more and more a society that does cost sharing, at least medically, with Obamacare, do I have to help pay for a lot of the expensive treatments that go along with this? Like, these are some of the questions that I have that we can't really tackle today. But the, I, I think there, no matter what, this isn't going to be um, consequence-free. Yeah. No, it never will be. And I think maybe in, the, in a future episode, talking about the responsibilities of being a minority, not just in ethnic terms but being a minority in any larger culture whether that's being a catholic in a protestant culture yep. or being a 
woman in a men's industry or a man in a majority woman's industry? Like what type of ethical responsibilities do those individuals have and what type of responsibilities does the majority have? I think that'd be a super fascinating um, discussion because it really ties into what we're talking about here. Like how, okay, so you want to be a cat, you know, like let's take a clownish version of this. Everyone choose your identity joyride. I want to be a cat. I don't want to work. I want to sleep all day. Yeah. I want someone to own me. <laughs> I want them to pay for everything that I am. And I will never be happy if I don't, if these mm-hmm. things aren't yeah. met. How much do we as a general culture have to indulge you? Exactly. That's the big yeah. question. How much do you have to indulge? And before we mm-hmm. go, there were a couple things I forgot to bring up at the beginning that I wanted to give us context. Most people have probably stopped listening to this by now, but um, just for just pure mathematical context, um, Nick, you would put the uh, homosexual population at around four to five percent. I know we're all on a scale, but people who mm-hmm. are like, "Hey, I'm gay. That's who I am." About four people to five. on the very far side of the Kinsey scale. Let's say yeah. four to five percent. Yeah. And then with transgendered people, we're talking about zero point two to zero point three percent. And then with people that are born with genitalia that aren't quote, quote unquote normative, that have to have some kind of like maybe they're hermaphrodites or whatever, or they have to make some sort of decision or something. That's, I think, 0.5%. So those are the numbers we're talking about. So when, so just when, just for reference, when we're talking about, like, this is an issue for the gay community, that's, like, 5% of people. We say this is an issue for the trans community, we're talking about 0.3% of the population. So sometimes, especially when we talk about statistics, those, those the, the differences in, in population size can really affect how you study things, how you analyze things, how data is interpreted, sample size, things of that nature. That's why I think sometimes these conversations are fraught statistically because the smaller sample size, like if 13% of the population is African-American, we can have a different kind of a statistical conversation than if 0.2% of the population is transgendered. Like it's going to be harder to get useful data. That's basically mm-hmm. my point. Oh, absolutely. Anywho, that's all the time that we have for today. We've already taken too much of your time. Um, we are still getting back on track with uh, some some new and old returning guest speakers. Um, we want to continue to spread our wings and fly here on the mean. But uh, until we figure out our life um, and I can figure out how to get my kid to sleep through the night, we're probably, we're probably not going to be able to tell you what the upcoming episode is each week. But for now, this has been Ryan. And Nick. And you'll hear from us next week. Okay. Bye. Bye.